Well, good morning. So glad to have all of you here with us at Rock Hills today. If we do have any middle school students, uh, you are welcome to go around the corner and down to room 20 to our vertical class, if you would like. I do want to give you a heads up. Today's message and for the next couple of weeks is going to be PG-13 just because of some of the content. And so if you do have younger children in here, elementary or middle school age that you might not want in here, now is your opportunity to take them to class. But I do want you to know it's uh, we're going to look at, at some genuine stuff here. We're looking at the women in the legacy of Jesus, and they're not easy stories to look at, to be honest, and it's on purpose. Matthew is the one who writes about these ladies being in the legacy of Jesus, and I'm going to go ahead and give you a pop quiz here this morning, which none of you wanted today when you came to church, but it's only got one question on it, and if you pass it, you can tell everybody you passed all the Bible quiz for going to church this week, all right? Matthew, it's the first book in the New Testament, the first one of the Gospels. It is written by whom? Matthew. All right. I heard one person answer. That covers you all. You all get a hundred today. Give yourselves a round of applause there. Matthew is written by Matthew. Now, what you need to know about Matthew is he was a tax collector by trade. And a tax collector is not your IRS agent that you and I would be familiar with today. Uh, You know, he didn't work on helping everybody, you know, settle up the income and the numbers and all that sort of stuff. A tax collector was a bad dude who uh, basically, just to put it in a nutshell, had sold out his own people and community so that he could make a whole lot of money. A tax collector was a very despised person. If you go throughout the New Testament, you're going to see them talk about sinners and tax collectors. Tax collectors have their own category of being bad people, all right? So I say all that just to say this is the guy who's writing this. Now, each one of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, They've got their own unique style to them. They're writing to their own unique audience. Matthew is writing to a group of predominantly Jewish people who knew all the religious ins and outs, who knew what it meant to be religious in order to be right. And so you've got to consider the source and who he's writing to. Matthew is a guy who knew what it was like to be put in the corner, to be on the outs with the religious people. And now those are the very people that he is writing his gospel to. Matthew's writing to this Jewish audience and he understands grace. He's got a very good grip on what it means to have your life transformed, to have your story rewritten. And as we look at the ladies in Jesus's lineage, these are ladies who have had their story rewritten. Matthew is going to begin his gospel with the very most important question to the Jewish audience. Now, if you are a Jewish person in that context and you're claiming that Jesus is the Messiah, every Jewish person, their first thing is going to be, okay, first thing you have to do to prove that to me is prove to me that he came from David. Now, David, if you'll remember, David, Goliath, right? The slingshot, killed the giant. That's the David we're talking about. He goes on to become the king of Israel. He is the Jewish people's hero. And for good reason, God God had, had his hand placed upon David. And every Jewish person knows that if Jesus is the Messiah, he is a descendant 
of King David. And so Matthew is going to start, as we look at these ladies, he's going to start by answering the Jewish people's very first question. Did this guy come from King David? Now, you and I, when we think about the genealogy of Jesus, we probably go way, way back all the way to Mary and Joseph, right? One generation to the parents. We're familiar with that. But these Jewish people, they wanted a whole lot more proof and context. They wanted to know that it went back to all the way to David. And he's going to take it back all the way to Abraham as he talks about it. Now for you and I, if we want to know about our ancestry, right? You can just go to ancestry.com, put a little spit in a tube, stick it in the mail and it comes back and you can see all these people that you're related to and they might be able to see that they're related to you too. So you better be careful, right? But we can see who's on our mom's side, who's on our father's side, who was, oops, we didn't know that person was in our family tree, right? But the DNA proves it. We can see all of this. In this context, as we read the Bible, it was very paternal. In other words, it, it was very male-focused, and genealogy would have been listed this way, the son of, the son of, the son of, the son of. And that's the way that they looked at genealogy. Now, you and I could go and go, hey, moms are pretty important. We just celebrated Mother's Day last week, right? And that's true. But in this context, I want you to understand that it was 100% paternal. They looked at the son of, the son of, the son of, and the lineage was carried on through the sons that were born into a family. And so they want to know that it goes back to David. But as we look at this genealogy, there's going to be some ugly stories that come up that Matthew, remember, he understands what it's like to be rejected. He understands what it's like to be on the outs with the religious people. He's going to throw in some marginalized people. He's going to throw in some women, which would have been absolutely shocking. He's going to throw in people of different race, which would have been absolutely shocking. People who had gone through tough circumstances or made poor choices. And he's going to put them, list them within the lineage of Jesus. His message to us right away, his message to the Jewish people is that every single person has value. No matter how good you think you are to these people who are holding these religious high esteems, he's saying every single person has value and every single person is redeemable. Like Jesus said, I've come to seek and save the lost. He's saying every story can be rewritten. So as we get into this, I just want to start with you and I. No matter where you've been, no matter what choices you have made or what you've been through because of your choices or because of someone else's choice, your story and my story can be rewritten by the grace of God. Let's look at Matthew chapter 1, beginning at the very beginning of the book here. It says, this is the record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, the descendant of David and Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. He throws that in there. Perez was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of 
Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Ruth. Boaz was the father of Obed, whose mother was Rahab. The last one, mother was Rahab. This one, his mother is Ruth. Sorry, I was getting ahead of myself. Obed was the father of Jesse. Jesse was the father of King David. David, the father of Solomon, whose mother was Bathsheba, the widow of Uriah. Now, you notice these little places where Matthew's throwing a little extra into the genealogy, right? You see the son of, son of, son of. But he throws in four, oh, who, by the way, this is who that person's mother was. And for everybody in this Jewish audience who would have read this and heard this passed on, they all would have said, oh, my goodness, did you have to bring that up? Right? Every one of us, we've got people within our family that you just kind of sometimes don't want to mention or don't want to mention things that have happened in the past, that was these women right here. And for Matthew to bring these things up, and I know some of you have just graduated and you may have those people here with us this morning, so we welcome all of you, (laughs) even if that's you here today. But as Matthew mentions these people, it would have been absolutely jarring for the audience to hear. And I think Matthew's point is that these are not just the people that Jesus came from, but he's saying we, we're the people that Jesus came for. That Jesus came for people who weren't perfect, for people who had issues, for people who have made poor decisions in their life, for people who have had to go through hellish circumstances because of the decisions of others. And as we look at some of these ladies in these stories, there's going to be some rough circumstances. And I will admit, it may be rough for you just because of the things that you have lived out in your life, but I hope we can find the grace and the hope in this. Last week, Tiffany shared with us, she she shared the story of Ruth. And Ruth is a good and heartwarming story. She comes from a very difficult circumstance, but she makes the best of it, and God redeems her story. And you'll probably see why in a little bit. Even though she wasn't the first one listed, we decided to go with Ruth on Mother's Day because it's a bit more of a happy story than some of the other stories that we're going to be looking at. There were other ladies also in Jesus's lineage. Sarah, Rebecca, Leah, Rachel. These are great stories and Matthew doesn't even mention them. Matthew mentions ladies like Tamar, Rahab, and maybe the one that you're most most familiar with, Bathsheba. These are ladies who just mentioning their name would have been shocking to the people who heard this. These stories, like I said, they're going to be a little bit raw. Your kids have never done a coloring picture of these stories when they were in children's church. Honestly, you're going to see as we go through some of the text today... I'm not even going to read all of the text. Today's text comes from Genesis chapter 38, and I'm going to reference a lot of it, and it will be up on the screen for you, but I'm just simply going to tell you the story of Tamar today. 
but the text is pretty rough just in itself. And if you've ever thought the Bible was boring and didn't have any Jerry Springer in it, you're wrong because we're going to see a lot of that. As a matter of fact, we're going to talk about Tamar. There's two Tamars in the Old Testament. One of them is King David's daughter. Her story is even worse than the Tamar that we're going to look at today. But we're going to look at this particular Tamar because she is in the lineage of Jesus. As we look at these women, we're going to see women who have been marginalized, who have been abused, who have been used and forgotten. And as we look at that, I don't think we can look at that and just say, well, these are sermon topics because this was reality for these people in that day. And it's reality for people today. It's reality for some of you who are sitting here in this room, and it's definitely reality for at least one person that every single one of you know. So these are rough subjects to look at in the Bible, but don't just look at them as a Bible story because these are reality for what people are going through every day in the world that we live in. We're going to look at Tamar, and to understand Tamar today, we also have to look at Judah. And, and see him in this context as well. We'll give you a warning. Tamar makes some very unconventional uh, decisions in her story that we will see here in a little bit. Uh, she's going to be put into some very difficult situations. And in the cultural biases at this time, it just makes the story of redemption even greater because she faced some very difficult things. Genesis chapter 28, it's a very wild chapter, I will say that. Uh, she is the mother of two of Judah's children, uh, two sons, and they're twins. Uh, but those aren't the only children that Judah had. Judah had three other sons as well. And uh, before we get there, things are going to get a little bit uh, crazy. So let's look at who Judah was. Uh, Judah is one of Jacob's sons, and to rewind it just a little bit farther even, it begins with Abraham, and he's the father of many nations, and God makes these great promises to Abraham, I'm going to make you the father of many nations, and blessings are going to come from you. So there's this promise, this covenant of God that rests upon Abraham. Abraham has a son named Isaac, and Isaac has a son named Jacob, and Jacob goes on to have 12 sons. It's Judah and his brothers. And you may rem remember these because he also has another uh, son, Joseph, who you will remember is thrown into a pit. Joseph, coat, coat of many colors. Judah is the older brother who's kind of leading that charge to get rid of Joseph, which is a whole other story about God's redemption. But Jacob Rep represents the nation of Israel, God's people. All right, so we have Jacob, and he represents the nations of Israel. He has 12 sons, and Israel goes on to have 12 tribes named after each one of his sons. Israel, the nation, is going to struggle. This is the story of the Old Testament, if I can put it in a, in a nutshell. It's God's promise to his people, God's covenant, and these people follow after God, and God gives them grace, and then they fall away from God, and they walk out of God's blessing, and God lifts his hand, and then they repent and come back to God, and this cycle over and over and over again 
which is also our story, right? It also sets the nation of Israel up for needing a redeemer and a Messiah, which is our story, right? We needed a Messiah, and Jesus shows up. So Judah is one of the 12. He's the one that the line of Jesus will come from, and you may think uh, that he's some sort of hero, right? I mean, he's, he's in the line here. Jesus comes, comes from his lineage, but that's not the case with Judah. He's not the greatest guy. We already mentioned his role there in, uh, in Joseph's story. But as we get to his story with Tamar, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 28. And by the time we get to verse 2, he's going to marry a Canaanite woman. We don't know her name. She's just a, a nameless Canaanite woman that is in the story. But she is going to bear three children for Judah. And their names are Ur, good choice, right? Ur, Onan, and Shelah. Ur, Onan, and Shelah. So she has these three sons, and you'll notice that Matthew doesn't mention any of their names. She also, uh, he will go, Judah will go on to have two more children. The mother of these children is Tamar. And their names are Perez and Zara. Now, just to give you a little bit of a cultural setting for this day, it's not like, you know, you went down to the local market and you saw this woman across the way. She's buying some olives. Your eyes met. You fell in love. You went out on some dates and you got down on your knee and proposed to this woman. And it was a happily ever after story. It was arranged marriages. In these, in these days and in this context and very paternal and male driven. And so one day Judah is out there. He sees this, this young lady, Tamar, and he says, I think I would like for you to be the wife of my oldest son, Ur. And she's like, Ur, come on. Can't you give me one with a better name than Ur? But anyway, she ends up being selected for Ur. And in verse 7, we don't know all of the situation, but we see that Ur was a very wicked young man, and God eliminated him. He died, which is a whole other topic for another time. But she's married to Ur, and now she is a widow because Ur was a bad dude, and God eliminated him. But in this particular setting, you're selected to marry into a family to carry on the lineage of that family. And if the particular son that you are married to as a woman should die in battle, natural causes, or just because God eliminated them, then you would go on to be married to the next brother in line because your role is to bear children for this family and carry on the lineage for this family. So ladies, think a second about your brother-in-law, all right? That's who you would be married to next in this particular setting. So Tamar is now going to be passed on to the next brother so that uh, she can bear children for this family. So she is now going to be married to Onan. So Judah gives Tamar to Onan to conceive a child. She, he tells Onan, Judah does, hey, go to Tamar, conceive a child. It would technically be his brother's child. And Onan's not down with this whole thing. 
Onan is a little bit bitter about it. He's going to go have a child and it's not going to be his kid. It's going to be his brother's kid. So Onan intentionally helps himself to the pleasure in verse 10, but refuses any of the responsibility to assure that she does not get pregnant. So God takes Onan's life. Two brothers down now. So Tamar is now widowed twice. Tamar has now been taken advantage of and used. And as Judah looks at brother number three, who's probably a very young man at this point, and his name is Sheila, which isn't much better, but here's Sheila. He looks at Sheila and says, hey, Sheila's young. Tamar, why don't you go back to your family? We're returning you. Return to sender. Basically, don't call us We'll call you. We'll send for you someday, he says in verse 11. Now, this would have been very shameful for Tamar. In that culture, if you had to be sent back to your family, it's because you were damaged goods, because you were no good to anyone. Now, you wouldn't have been free to go on and marry somebody else because you're committed to this family. Even though you've been sent home to your family, you're still under obligation. And in this culture, she couldn't go out and get a job. She couldn't work to make herself better. So Tamar is now labeled as a rejected and discarded woman. She is damaged goods. She would have been an outcast in this society where her value would have been based on her ability to bear children. And the problem is that Judah never intends to send Sheila. Tamar. So this is the story for the rest of her life. She's put in a very difficult situation. Now just to turn around the camera on us here. I don't know if you've ever felt like you've been put in a situation where you've been taken advantage of, where you've been used, where somebody used you so that they could get ahead and then you've just been discarded and forgotten, put in a corner. Maybe you've been treated as if you were simply for someone else's pleasure and their gain so that they could get ahead in life. That was Tamar. She's been taken out of her family, committed to this other family, and now she's been rejected and returned as damaged goods. Tamar has been cheated. She's been marginalized, taken advantage of. But the good news is the Bible is full from beginning to end of God moving in defense of those who are defenseless. Now, you could say, well, maybe Tamar's better off. I mean, this family sounds pretty messed up, right? I mean, Judah's done some bad stuff. Ur and Onan were obviously bad guys, so maybe she's just better off being damaged goods. The translation for that in our society would be, maybe she should be happy staying with you. You know, you should just take the abuse. You should just let him talk to you that way, right? Just stay in that situation and deal with it. That's where Tamar is at. Some of you have been there. Some of you know others who are in that situation. As we go on, we don't know how much time passes, but we do know here as the years go by that Judah's nameless Canaanite wife passes away. Sheila has now uh, grown up and uh, he's become a young man now himself. 
And Judah is coming to town, we see in verses 12 and 13, for the shearing of sheep, which has got to be an exciting event, but it's happening in these days. And Judah is showing up. And here's Tamar. She's husbandless because because Judah has not fulfilled his promise to her. She couldn't go get herself a job and pull herself out of her situation. She couldn't go marry someone else. She's been left poor and alone. And before we go on, I want us to think about our own culture. Because all of us are surrounded by people that for whatever reason, sometimes because of their own choices, sometimes because of the choices of others, they don't have the ability to move forward in life. And that was Tamar here in this situation. She's been marginalized by the actions of others. The gospel is clear that we in those situations are to be the light of Christ for the people around us, for the people who for whatever reason can't move forward in life. Just this afternoon, we're going to go and give out clothes to some people who, for whatever reason, are not able to move forward in their lives. And to many of us here in this room, those are the clothes you didn't want anyway, right? And we can give those away, and if somebody gave us a bag of used clothes, we might go, oh, thank you, right? And I'm taking this to the Salvation Army, or I'll give it to Miguel, or whatever. These are people that are easy to turn our head from and look the other way. And that was Tamar, somebody who couldn't move forward in their life. Proverbs 22, 22 through 24 reminds us not to take advantage of the poor, that God is the defender of the defenseless. In James 1, 27, it reminds us that true religion is to help the widows and the orphans and those who cannot help themselves. Judah, he's taken advantage of Tamar, but yet There's going to be defense for the defenseless in this situation, just like Jesus does for us. Jesus is our defender. He comes to set the captives free. Tamar realizes that Judah's never going to send Sheila. She's stuck in this situation. She hears that her mother-in-law has died. She hears that he's going to be in Timnah, the town just down the road, And so Tamar is going to make a very bold and somewhat controversial move, I would say. She puts on a disguise. She covers herself with a veil, and she dresses as a prostitute. And she goes down to the end of the road, and she sits there, and she waits for Judah and his crew to come by. And sure enough, that's what happens. Verse 14, and then in verses 15 through 17, Judah sees her, but she's veiled. He doesn't recognize her. He thinks that she's a prostitute. And so he propositions her and he offers her a goat. Now, let me just say, women, if anybody ever offers you a goat, you just pass on the opportunity. All right. But here she is, Tamar, and he offers her a goat. Tamar is in covenant with this family. She is a part of this family. She cannot marry into another family. And here's Judah who is not willing to make things right for her. Her identity was to bring forth a child for this family. 
Legally, she should have been married now to Sheila, or even at this point could have been connected with Judah, but those things are not going to happen. So she makes this bold move. She dresses as a prostitute. She waits for Judah to come by, and sure enough, Judah doesn't take a second to take the bait, and he walks up, and he offers her a goat for a moment of privacy with her. Now, remember, Judah has already deceived her and lied to her. And so why in the world would she believe him, right? Because he doesn't have the goat with him, actually. It's not like, hey, I'll trade you this goat in exchange. He says, hey, let's make this exchange. And after I go back to my town, I'll send a goat back to you. Now, why would she buy that? So she's smart. She says, I need some assurance. So in verse 17 and 18, she says, I want your signet ring. I want the cord that holds the signet ring, and I want your walking stick. Now, these things were not just accessories that Judah would have carried with him. These things were his identity. This was his passport. This was his driver's license. This was his social security number, right? The signet ring would have been his signature that he would have sealed something with, and you remember who Judah was. He was the chosen, in the chosen line of God. This shows that he is who he was in order with God. So it's his ring, and he didn't probably wear it on his finger. He would have worn it on uh, probably a leather strap that would have hung around his neck so that he could use it when he needed to. So she says, I want the ring, and just so nobody knows they don't think I stole it from you, I want the cord that it's on as well, and your staff, which not only helps you walk, but it represents your authority, and would have spoken of his authority to everyone there. She said, let me have all of those things. So in a moment of desire for pleasure, Judah lets go of his identity so that he can have a moment of pleasure. Now, can we all be real honest and say men will do some stupid stuff just for a desire for pleasure? And that's exactly what Judah does here. And that's, a, that's another sermon for, for another time. But he hands over his identi- identity that identifies who he is to God just for a moment of pleasure. So verse 18 and 19, she dims the lights, puts on some very white music. They have their moment. And then she quickly heads back home. Now Judah does actually fulfill his end of the promise here when he gets back To his town, he grabs a goat, he hands it off to his guys, he says, hey, take the goat back to the prostitute and uh, we'll be done with this situation. So the friend takes the goat, verses 21 and 22, they go back, they say, hey, where's the prostitute? We don't see her anywhere. They ask all around, what about the, the prostitute who works out at the end of the road here? We don't know of any prostitute. There's no prostitute that works around here. They can't, they can't find her anywhere. So they take the goat back to Judah and basically just say in verse 23, oh well, life goes on, right? I I tried to send the goat, we're good, we'll move on. Until three months later, when a report comes back to Judah, your daughter-in-law, you know how that is, parents, uh, when one parent says to the other, your son, you know, That comes back to Judah and says, your daughter-in-law, which is ironic because now she's back in the family, 
right? She's been rejected from the family, but all of a sudden it's, hey, your daughter-in-law has turned up pregnant. She has obviously been prostituting herself. Now, did they think that because they knew what happened? They didn't know about the situation. They didn't know about Tamar's plan. So they had no idea. The reason they thought that she was prostituting herself is because she couldn't work and she didn't have a husband. So if she's pregnant, she's obviously been working and ended up in this particular situation. They say she must have been making a living. Let's look at verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law has acted like a prostitute. And now because of this, she's pregnant. Here's what Judah says. Bring her out and let her be burned, Judah demanded. This woman who I have rejected and pushed aside and dismissed and ignored and looked the other way from, bring her out and let her be executed in front of everybody. And the irony is, Judah wants her to be executed in front of everybody because he thinks that she has done the exact same thing that he is actually guilty of. Now, was this Judah's only time to find a prostitute? We don't know that. I would venture to say it probably wasn't, but I'm just assuming in that. He wants her to be publicly disgraced, punished, and executed for something that he himself is privately guilty of. And as I read this, I got to say, this is, this is the church right here. We can look down our noses at other people and say, how dare they live that way when it's inside of us as well. Maybe we don't act it out. Maybe it's just up here. Maybe it's just what we entertain ourselves with. But we can look down at other people and say, how dare they live that way when it's right here within us too. It goes on in verse 25. But as they were taking her out to kill her, she sent this message to her father-in-law. The man who owns these things made me pregnant. Look, look closely. Whose seal and cord and walking stick are these? Drop the mic right there. She said, oh, by the way, before you kill me, let me show you what I've got right here. Here's your ring. Here's your necklace. And here's your walking staff. And you are the baby daddy. This is BC to catch a predator right here. She's looking him in the eye and she's saying, I have been committed to this family. How about you? How dare you be so hypocritical as to accuse me when it's you whose hands are dirty? And at least Judah owns up to it. In verse 26, it says, Judah recognized them and immediately said, she is more righteous than I am because I didn't arrange for her to marry my son, Sheila. And Judah never slept with Tamar again. She will go on to have twins that will be in the lineage of Jesus. This is a story about being rejected 
dismissed, taken advantage of, accused, threatened. And God hates these things. But it's also a story of God's redemption. Because God does give her a child. Gives her two children. And they aren't just any children. They go on to be in the very lineage of Jesus. So I want us to think about this before we let out of here today. In thinking about this situation and our situation, I think we have to ask ourselves in honesty because we're surrounded by people every day who feel taken advantage of, who feel rejected, who feel ostracized by the church. For whatever reason, for legitimate reasons or for reasons that they've just come up with because they had a bad day. But we are surrounded by people who for whatever reason have said, I will never go back to church again. I don't want to have anything to do with God again in my life. Or I don't want to have anything to do with you Christians anymore. They feel like they've been taken advantage of. And yet we want them to receive the loving, redemptive message of the gospel, generally speaking, from a church whose hands are not clean. And we want them to know the love of God just like you and I have found. And yet I think they can look at us and go, is this your signet ring? Is this your staff? Is this your cord? Because they can look at us and go, you're just as messed up as I am. The church in general, I think, is holding our items. But the good news of this story is that God can rewrite the story of our lives for the mistakes that we have made And for those who feel marginalized and rejected, that the grace and the goodness of God, if we're willing to lay aside our own sinful nature and say, God, would you use us? That God can rewrite any story. He's the defender of the defenseless. He redeems and remembers the forgotten. And he welcomes the rejected. Would you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, I pray for those today in this room or outside of this room who for whatever reason, good or bad, have been rejected, who feel like they've been ostracized or marginalized by the very people who should be the people of God. And Father, we pray for a redemptive story right here in San Antonio, right here in Rock Hills Church. Lord, that you would let us be the people who might see the error of our own ways, who might be the healing hands of Jesus who has come to seek and save the lost, to heal the brokenhearted and to set the captives free. Father, I pray that you would give us eyes of discernment that we would see as you see. Father, that you would give us hearts of compassion that feel what you feel. And Father, I pray specifically for those here today who are hurting. 
because they're in a tough situation. I pray today that they would know the love of God. Lord, these are not just the stories of the people that Jesus came from, but Lord, we are the people that Jesus came for. May we know his love. I would ask that if you could just finish up this morning just by, in your own heart and in your own words, would you just spend a moment and ask God to move and redeem in your life? Maybe you're the one who needs to be rescued. Maybe you're the one who needs to repent. Holy Spirit, would you speak to us? Father, I thank you that you see these hearts and you hear these prayers. Father, I thank you that you love us even when we feel unlovable, that there's nothing that we can do to separate ourselves from the love of God. Lord, I pray for every one of us here in this room today that we would leave this place knowing that we are loved by you. Thank you for sending Jesus to take our place. Thank you for making us new creations. Lord, that you can forgive our past and redeem our sins. Thank you for the blood of Christ that makes us new. Father, help us to be your hands and feet as we leave this place today. In Jesus' name, amen.